All right, well, good morning. Welcome. Four months ago, Omar al-Bashir, if I'm saying that properly, the president of Sudan, was forced out of power. Some of you probably know that. And that event represents the answer to decades of praying by Christians in Sudan. He was born in 1944, and Bashir graduated from the Sudan Military Academy at age 22. And after fighting in the Egyptian-Israeli conflict in the early 70s, he worked his way up the ranks uh, through the Sudanese army. And then in 1989, he led a coup against al-Mahdi, who was Sudan's prime minister at the time. He immediately dissolved the parliament, he established Sharia law, he imposed military rule, and he declared himself to be the chairman of the new government. And since then, for the past 30 years, Bashir has ruled with malice and cruelty. In fact, he's responsible for what has been described in the Darfur and Nuba Mountains regions as the worst humanitarian crisis in the world since World War II. He and his troops and the militias that he sponsored slaughtered between 200,000 and 400,000 men, women, and children. He's forced over 2.7 million people from their homes and farms. Their methods include rape and torture, kidnapping, burning of houses, killing of cattle, burning of land. And Bashir has even conscripted male children, young boys, to do the fighting in Sudan and then sent them abroad to fight in other wars. But the prime target of his injustice has been non-Arab Christians in Sudan. In fact, he has expelled all missionaries from the country. He's targeted churches, schools, and hospitals, particularly for bombing. In fact, in one example, since 2012, the Sudanese Air Force has dropped 4,000 bombs on this small Nuba Mountains region. And every school in that part of the world has a foxhole built into their playground. The children know the sound of approaching planes, and as the voice of the martyrs reporter stated it, they also know the sound of the engine is, that is made when a bomb has been released. And anytime they hear that sound, they run with their teachers into the foxhole and wait and hope. So many people have lost their relatives and their homes and their lands in the Nuba Mountains region that over 500,000 of them right now are living in caves in the hills. And many of them, most of them, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Meanwhile, during this 30-year period, Bashir kept amassing his power and his personal wealth. In fact, some people estimate that he embezzled $9 billion of the country's oil money and put it in offshore accounts. Four months ago, at the time he was deposed, his declared personal net worth was $1 billion dollars. In other words, he has lived for these decades a life of ease and prosperity while the people he terrorized lived in caves and starved. Now, knowing that Bashir, one person, has spent 30 years successfully oppressing his own country and getting rich off the misery of his people, we are forced by that to consider some important questions. Where was God in the last 30 years in Sudan? Did he even know about Omar al-Bashir and the Sudanese people? And if he knew, why did he allow this kind of suffering to go on, this kind of unbelievable injustice? 
And why did God seemingly reward Bashir with expanding prosperity and increasing power as he continually oppressed and crushed hundreds of thousands of people and their lives? Does God even care about a nation of people who daily suffer in that way? Not only under the load of poverty, but also under the suffocating blanket of fear. And if God allows such things, should we trust him? And given that it's particularly Christians that Bashir um, caused to suffer under his rule, does it really make sense for us to seek and serve God if this is the kind of reward that his faithful followers receive from their service to him? Well, thankfully, in the Bible, God takes all of these questions, and he wraps them together, and he poses it this way. Is it futile to follow Yahweh? That's the big question we ask. And fortunately, that's the question that Psalm 73 was written as a square and forthright answer to. And so let's stand for the reading of God's word. Thank you, John. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for your goodness in giving us your word. And we pray that you would work in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls and our spirits to open our eyes to see you through your word. We pray you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I want to preview a little bit about what's ahead in Psalm 73, which we just read, and that is that this psalm starts with a prologue in the form of two confessions. And in the, in the second session, section, Asaph is going to muster all the most disturbing evidence against the statement that he makes in that prologue. And then in, in a third section, he's going to reason from that evidence to a very logical but spiritually deadly conclusion. And then in the, se- in the fourth section, he's going to see that that evidence and the conclusion it leads to are both overturned by one great but often forgotten fact. And then finally, in the last section, from this fact, there's a new conclusion that we can derive. And Asaph is going to boldly proclaim his new manifesto, a manifesto that we too, I think, should consider adopting. So we get to follow along as we go here. Um, and please do that as we look at the, at the text. So first, a prologue in the form of two confessions. First, Asaph confesses his faith. And as you can see from verse 1, this opening statement is akin to the disclaimer a person might give before telling a harrowing story. For example, suppose you were going to read to your child the adventures of Robinson Crusoe, or you were that child, and your father, knowing that Robinson suffers two shipwrecks, is enslaved by pirates, contracts malaria, Um, is attacked by cannibals, and spends 28 years on a deserted island, he feels it's necessary to tell you in advance that, son, I want you to know that Robinson lives. It looks frequently hopeless, but he will make it through all of his adventures. And it's almost as if Asaph is saying at the head of of this psalm, what you're about to see and think about is absolutely discouraging and appalling. But the conclusion of it all is this. Truly, God is good to his people. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And that's his confession in verse 1. So really, Asaph's kind of giving to us the moral of the story right away, before the story's even told. And yet, it's the unassailable, unwavering, irrefutable thing, the one irrefutable thing in the universe, that no matter how the universe arranges itself, For us on a given day, it is necessarily true that God is good to his children. And he's confessing that truth. He fought hard to discover it, and he wants us to keep it in our minds as we proceed through his psalm that he wrote. Now, before we keep going, we should probably settle one burning question, second burning question that's in your mind possibly, and that is, well, how can I have a pure heart? How can I be one of God's children? Well, the very thing we celebrate on a, on a daily basis, on Sundays, I should say, when we, is that we remember the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. 
And his crucifixion and his resurrection is the means by which you and I can become pure in heart and become God's children. In other words, those who trust in Christ have, as Hebrews 10 states it, confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated through his flesh. The blood Jesus lost on the cross, in other words, is the means by which you and I find purity of heart, and find new life. And as we draw near to God through Christ, God himself cleanses our hearts. And God himself makes us his children. So truly, God is good to those who trust him, to those who are pure in heart. Now this brings us to the second part of the prologue in verse 2 and 3. You can see, even though Asaph knew that God was good, he almost defected from the way. His, his steps, as he said, were dangerously close to stumbling and slipping out of the path. That is, he had almost concluded that God is not good to his children. He's not good, he almost concluded. How? How could a leader of Israel like Asaph, appointed by David to lead worship in the temple, who had the personal experience of God's goodness many times, come close to joining the spiritual ranks of those who oppose the Lord? Well, thankfully, he tells us in his psalm. He's a very honest poet. He's going to chronicle for us the, the progress of his growing unbelief here. And he tells us right away that it was envy. Envy did it. He was jealous of a certain group of people. Has that ever happened to you? Well, who was he jealous of here? It was the boastful. It was the wicked. And why was he jealous of them? Well, because they were happy. They seem to be prospering. Now, the word for prosperity in this verse is an important Old Testament word. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which means total welfare or complete peace or a sense of wholeness. It is the word most often used in the Old Testament for the kind of blessed life that God's people long to receive from their creator. But here, Asaph is showing us that this rich, excellent life filled with peace and good things is, ironically, the very life that not the righteous, but the wicked and arrogant are presently enjoying. And so here, Asaph makes his honest confession, his second confession, and that is, I'm failing. And then he immediately starts presenting the disturbing evidence for why he's failing, why he's doubting, and why he's struggling to believe what he confessed in verse 1. All right, so then through verse 4 and 9, he says things like this. He, he reminds us that many people die in travail, but the wicked die, as the NAS version puts it, the wicked die painlessly. Many people waste away in hunger, while the wicked are fat and happy. Most people suffer trouble and pain and misery, but not the wicked. Most people are plagued or stricken at times, but the wicked seem to escape this, this, this plot or this plight. And in verse 6, he says, The wicked are not pained or stricken like the rest of mankind, but rather they're prideful because their, their life is comfortable. And their pride is so obvious. It's like, it's like a shining necklace around them. And, in fact, their arrogance overflows into their dealings with other people. They're oppressive. They're violent towards other people. 
They're unjust in their treatment of people because they're so arrogant. And in fact, their violence is so much a part of their lives as it was for Bashir that it's as if they're wearing violence like a piece of clothing. So in verse 7, he shows us that their ease and pride even affects their eyeballs. I love this image right here. He, he says, like a great eye that's almost too big for its socket, so their heart's imaginings just sort of run wild and their plans burst out and cross all, all limits. They're dreaming grand but evil dreams as people. And then um, he says that their tongue also, in verse 8 and 9, is animated by their pride. In fact, they mock and they jeer and they blaspheme God and they blaspheme men. And they talk about how to satisfy their own desires at the expense of other people. They plan oppression. They plan crimes. It's, in fact, as though their tongue was strutting through the earth, speaking what it will and accomplishing it, which is another beautiful image in this psalm. And it's all also like their mouth is sitting up in the heavens, making grand pronouncements against people and against God. So this fact is not just the case in Asaph's day either. It's happening today. It's a perfect picture of the present. I want you to think about it. Tongue strutting is alive and well. For example, consider this memorable quote from our, our, our famously famous friend Richard Dawkins, one of our culture's most well-known biologists, who's wonderful to quote, by the way. He says this in his book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That is God according to Richard Dawkins. Now, the question is, does that kind of irreverence, that kind of parading of the tongue through the, through the earth by Richard Dawkins cost him at all? No. In fact, it's almost like he's rewarded for saying things like that. He's praised. He was named author of the year by the British Galaxy Awards for that book that that quote appears, for, appears in. And, and at the time, the editors of Time magazine listed him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. So that's disturbing evidence that Asaph and we can easily amass, that the arrogant and proud promote evil and are rewarded for it with shalom. And followers of Yahweh, meanwhile, are who embody the frailty of the human condition in so many ways, they watch from the side and they consider it all and here's what they naturally think as a result of seeing this evidence. And here's the deadly effect of that disturbing evidence according to Asaph in verses 10 through 16. He's gonna say that it's, it's one thing to watch and observe such things, but the real devastation spiritually happens to us when we reflect and we consider what it implies, as Asaph does. For example, in verse 11, seemingly inevitable questions are posed. Does God even know about this? Does the Most High have knowledge of what is happening in the low parts of the earth? 
Now, who's asking these questions? Well, some people think that it's the wicked. I mean, it could very well be the wicked posing these questions. They, in fact, have every right based on their sort of I mean, endless success of their oppression and their wickedness to assume that God doesn't know what they're doing or that he knows and doesn't care about what they're doing or to assume that he's just not a factor to be reckoned with at all. And it could also be God's people and asking these questions who are seeing the world go as it does and wondering, is God even watching this? What are the Sudanese Christians thinking? Is the Most High even concerned about us? About what's happening in the world? And then in verse 12, Asaph's going to draw a contrast. And he's also going to talk about a logic. First, the contrast, he says, behold, look at the wicked. Behold, look at them. The wicked spurn God. They indulge in arrogance. They live unrighteously. They gather temporal bounty for their unrighteousness. And then at the last, as the NAS puts it, they slide painlessly over the ultimate consequence of sin, death. But meanwhile, the pure in heart look on. They live their utmost as righteously and sincerely as they possibly can. And strangely, they suffer what would seem to be the proper consequences of wicked living. They suffer deprivation and pain and sorrow. And at the end, often an awful death. So where's God? Where's God who does justice on the earth? Now, Asaph feels that. But we know that. And we feel that, too. God's love and grace at certain seasons can, form, can come to us in the form of rebukes and correction. In fact, I remember there's nothing like the feeling of getting to school and seeing that Burton Black's mom packed him chocolate cake and a high C in his lunch while my mom just gave me extra carrots. So the start of receiving God's discipline is only tripled when we decide to play the comparison game. And that's exactly what Asaph's doing. When one sees his wicked neighbor enjoying health and happiness, this natural, naturally leads to this sort of logical conclusion. And he's going to focus on the logic here. And in fact, in this part, we come to the dark heart of the psalm and really the central error that is kind of like a gaping Grand Canyon threatening to swallow every believer who's reflective about things. So based on the obvious evidence that the wicked prosper and the righteous are suffering, an equally obvious thing forces its way into the heart of the psalmist and any observant Christian, and it's this, surely it is absolutely worthless and vain to serve Yahweh. As Asaph meditates, it's for nothing that I have kept my heart pure. It is useless that I've cleansed my hands from guilt. I strive to keep my inner and outer life pleasing to God, a pursuit that entails lots of sacrifice and self-denial, and I receive discipline and distress while people who care nothing at all for purity or innocence, but rather they blaspheme and commit crime, are living the best of earthly lives. It's like he's on the very cusp of crying out, this is absurd, and you, God, are unjust. But before he actually does give up and broadcast this new unbelief to the world, 
and ultimately assault the faith of his brothers in Christ. Asaph, he hesitates because he knows what's at stake. He recognizes and he tells us in, in verse 15 and 16, he says, if I say this, that it's actually futile to follow Yahweh, I will betray, and the word betray there means to deal deceitfully with, I will betray this generation of Yahweh's followers. If I proclaim the vanity of faith, I will become the Benedict Arnold of God's people. He recognizes that. And so he refrains from speaking out loud. He doesn't say it out loud, even though these questions and these thoughts are screaming in his head. When he ponders it, he's troubled. Given that the wicked do indeed actually succeed and enjoy life, doesn't that nullify the life of um, the meaning of a life that's lived righteously? Isn't it just futile to follow Yahweh, he wonders. Now, have you ever wondered that? I'm confident that you have. In your own small ways and your own big ways, you've wondered if God's really that sovereign, if he's really that observant, if he's actually really that fair at all. Why do people who hurt you seem to get away with it? Why does the colleague who backstabs and cheats at work seem to be the one who gets the promotion? Why does the sibling who did it escape while you receive the discipline for it? Why is the politician of integrity falsely accused in public while the corrupt one is praised by the media? God knows that. He knows we wonder about it. He knows the seemingly obvious logic that follows from that. He knows all about that temptation that confronts us as people who are following and trying to live this life for Yahweh. But thankfully, Asaph sees through the logic, the apparent logic, because God is going to reveal to his wavering, doubting child this one simple, great, forgotten fact that overturns both the evidence and the conclusion that seems to follow necessarily from it in verse 17 through 20. And this is really the crux of this poem. And on this section, the whole psalm is pivoting. Notice here, Asaph's mind and heart are in anguish until he comes into the sanctuary of God. And while he's there, he makes a discovery, or really a rediscovery, that completely reorients the center of his thoughts and his heart. And in that sanctuary, in the place where he hears God's word, and God's, word is, and God's truth is vivid to him, he sees the ultimate outcome for people who spurn Yahweh. This is the one temporarily forgotten, simple, great fact. While he was gazing at the ways of the world, Asaph was deceived because the appearance of things captured his understanding completely. The great mountain of shocking evidence of injustice all over in his own experience and in the world smothered his convictions of what was true. If this present moment forms the perfect seat in which to sit and to pronounce judgment on the justice of the world and the justice of God, then there seems to be no use to righteousness, as Asaph was concluding. But actually, he realizes in the sanctuary, when he hears the truth, that this present moment is not the perfect moment at which to make final pronouncements. But rather, there's this future day with a capital D that looms majestically over every day that leads up to it. 
And as John said last week, the word of God here is like a javelin that pierces through the confusion and sends clarity into Asaph's mind and heart. He comes into the sanctuary, he understands God's truth, and his eyes are totally opened. And so are ours as we, as we progress through this psalm. Now we should note one thing before we keep going. As a general rule, we're learning from Asaph one thing here, and that is there is absolutely no way to rightly understand the present moment and its injustice without reckoning all of it in light of the ultimate end of all things. There's no way. There's no way to avoid envy. There's no way to avoid spiritual bitterness and stumbling without thinking comprehensively by accounting for the final, as of yet unseen, future result of the way people live. So in order to reckon rightly, to understand, to ponder well, we have to count on what we can't yet see. That's what Asaph's telling us in this poem. So if we just simply perceive the present, the present state of the wicked, they're prosperous, they're at ease, and we compare it to the state of those who see God, they're stricken daily, they're in trouble, they're rebuked all the time, that stokes bitter envy. And that promotes our doubts. And that just causes us to wander out of the path into the brambles of error. So that kind of presentist thinking leaves out the most important fact of all, and that is the fact of eternity and God's final judgment. Now look at what God says he will do in verse 18 to the wicked. He says he, says he will set them in slippery places. That's scary. That's scary. It says he sets their feet on an icy hill or, a, or like a frosty cliff. It says that God casts them down to destruction. He throws them down to ruin. They are snatched away by sudden alarms, literally in a moment or a wink. In other words, God's judgment when it comes will be abrupt and surprising. And the wicked will not expect it. And then it will fall upon them irreversibly. And it will be terrifying when it comes. And then in verse 20, he reminds us that God, in a sense, despises his enemies. That word despise is really a, a remarkable word in this context. Because you know how it is when you go to sleep and you have a dream. And you're in the dream. And the dream's very real. And you're running or you're not running because your legs have turned to concrete. And there's a monster chasing you. You know how that goes. We, we walk or we don't talk. I mean, we don't walk or we talk in our dreams. We're happy. And while we're in the dream, it's completely engrossing. It's our total reality. And then in a moment, we wake up. And we, it takes us a second. And our thoughts clear. And we realize, whew. That was only a dream. And what looked completely real at the moment, we find out was just a figment of our imagination. That is what God thinks of the wicked. As though he was asleep, which he's not, God sees and he waits patiently. He patiently endures the spurning and the hatred and the reviling and the crime and the violence and the pride and the oppression. But then, then as though he was waking up, he rises up and he casts his clear, piercing vision of his eye of justice upon them, and they will be despised as though they were just figments or phantoms from a dream, as though they were actually not. They're swept away by the morning. So that's the one simple great fact that Asaph remembers. 
that explodes all the temporary, but nevertheless tempting to believe appearance of things on earth. Perhaps those who forsake God are at ease right now, but Asaph says they will soon be thrown down. Perhaps prideful people oppress people who seek God right now, but there will come a time when they will be terrified. Perhaps the arrogant are fat and comfortable and successful and make great pronouncements with their tongues, but soon their voices will be turned to wailing and, and, and their comfort will turn to torment. Their success, actually, their success will be totally swallowed up in the greatest failure and despair a man or woman can know. God will judge them. It is the fact to which all their facts must bow. And Asaph gets that when he comes to the sanctuary. He sees it clearly. Then in verse 21 through 24, before he declares his renewed faith in Yahweh, he has this sort of interesting side trip to think about himself and how he was when he was thinking all these things. And this is sort of humorous, but, but if, if it was only true of Asaph, it would be humorous. But because it's us too, it's kind of not that funny. So he looks carefully at what kind of fellow he rendered himself when he was jealous of the wicked. And he considers how he's been treating God all during that season of doubt. And then he also considers how God's been treating him during that same season. And so let's kind of learn from Asaph here what happens when a person engages in the grand comparison game. Okay? So in order to play it, as Asaph did, you have to forget about the future. The present is all that matters. The present state of affairs, affairs is ultimate reality. You also have to secondly exaggerate the blessings of other people. Thirdly, you have to diminish and disesteem your own, own blessings. And fourthly, there is no fourthly. Never mind. Um, <laughs> the fourfold reward, though. There are four rewards for successfully playing this game and winning. And they are as follows. Number one, bitterness of heart. A bitter heart. A heart that's not just bitter momentarily, but that is settledly bitter. Secondly, deep, piercing sorrow. And this is the kind of sorrow that worms its way down even into your kidneys, as the literal meaning of the verse is. Your comparison turns to envy, your envy turns to bitterness, and your bitterness turns into this deep, settled pain in the center of your being. The third reward is this, brutish senselessness. This kind of exercise leads ultimately to an impairment of one's ability to think clearly in light of the truth. In fact, it leads to forgetting what's true, and it leads to non-thinking, Asaph shows us. And fourth and final, the final reward is you become a mindless beast, according to Asaph. As the word implies, it's like you're a large, unthinking cow. And it only makes sense if a person can say that in this context, that Asaph and everyone who succumbs to this fatal error are actually considering abandoning Yahweh for the earthly comforts and treasures that they do not presently possess. They, or we actually, might think it, it would have been better if we'd been living worldly, ungodly lives all this time. Perhaps we were wrong to leave everything for the Pollyanna promises of a king and a kingdom that we can't fully see yet. Now, can that really be called thinking clearly? No wonder Asaph says he was a beast. I mean, think about it. To view the wicked 
as enviable is senseless. It's senseless. To consider living in relationship with God as profitless is ignorant. It's stupid. It's beastly. We all do it. But what a fool Asaph was. He's telling us. And what a fool am I when I do it? What a hopeless fool I am. But fortunately, this fool and this beast was not being beastly and foolish alone. Notice what he says in verse 22. I was a beast before you or with you. How does God treat his children when they're in this beastly state? When Asaph was at his lowest and most despicable, when he was enthralled to this deception, God was still faithful to him. He didn't leave. He doesn't leave his children when they're embittered. He does not leave people when they render themselves beastly and ignorant. God never left Asaph, even when he was on the verge of speaking lies about Yahweh's faithfulness. God was still with him. Isn't that amazing? And in fact, God took hold of his right hand. Much like a parent takes hold of a child's hand. If her dad hadn't been there, that little girl would have, would have tripped and fallen over the sagebrush. But she didn't fall completely because her dad held her hand. And so God holds your hand. God counsels his children. And his counsel is trustworthy. And he guides them. And his guidance is good. So note how crucial God's word is to his children here. This is where we learn how good God is through his word. And ultimately, God's goal for his children is that they would partake in his own glory. The glory that only really God himself deserves to share for eternity. But he brings his children into it. That's their destiny. Glory. Wow. So remember that earlier comparison between the righteous and the wicked? In the first part of Asaph's poem, well, in this, in this part of the poem, a new comparison comes to light. That God is continually with his children, but he places the wicked in slippery places. That God holds those who trust him by the hand, but he hurls the arrogant into ruin. That God guides his followers with the counsel of his word while he sweeps the prideful away in sudden terror. And he receives his children into glory to be in his presence forever. And he despises the image of the wicked as though they were just figments of a dream. And because of that one simple great fact of God's judgment, it's like a new sun arises in Asaph's mind and sort of enlightens the once dark landscape of his experience and his perceptions. And it does that for us too. And so now in the final section, we get to see how Asaph feels as he declares his allegiance to God afresh. And really, he sort of writes his manifesto of faith in verses 25 through 28. Now, if we needed to, we could call this the epilogue of the poem, but that sort of sounds like an afterthought. We should actually call this the intense denouement, I almost said denouement, uh, denouement of the movie. I mean, this is where it really happens. This is what it's all been leading up to. This is Asaph saying, yes, God is good to his people. So I prefer to conceive of it as his bold credo or his new manifesto, even in the face of unthinkable but temporary evil, injustice, and suffering in this world. It's almost like he's shouting this creed in the hearing of all the angels and all the demons 
and the oppressive rulers like Bashir and the humble kings and the well-dressed cultural heroes, the starving poor, and to himself. It's his manifestation for the common follower of Yahweh. So I'm asking you and myself to join him and take this manifesto as your own this morning. Let's see what he says. First of all, he poses a question. He says, whom do I have in heaven? Now, that is a rhetorical question, just so you know. The answer, of course, is God. Now, please don't miss the profundity of this. We have God. We have God. That is what Asaph's saying. Whether you suffer or not, you have God. He's just, he's just telling us that God is with him, and God takes him by the hand. Then he makes another statement, another bold statement. As a result of recognizing that we have God, he says, with you, Lord, I desire nothing on earth. With you, if I have you besides you, I want nothing else. Now, just wait a second here. Didn't Asaph just spend most of the psalm telling us he was really mad that he wasn't fat and happy and comfortable and prosperous? He wanted all these things that the earth can offer people who are, who are rich or comfortable. How is it that now he just wants God? He wants nothing else but God. He doesn't want immediate justice anymore, although he would like that, but he wants God. Well, is it because he realizes that the earthly ease and prosperity that the wicked might be enjoying is nothing in comparison with the unending sorrow of destruction away from the presence of God? Maybe that's what's going on. Or is it because he realizes that the earthly comforts that we can have are just momentary things compared to the unending privilege and the blessing of eternal fellowship with the God of all glory? Maybe that's it. Or is it that his daily chastisement and his plaguey troubles and his daily stripes are not only worth tolerating, as onerous as they absolutely are, as grievous as they truly are, but they actually maybe have some fitting eternal purpose that counterbalances ultimately the sorrow that they bring. Or maybe he realizes that all earthly goods proceed from God. And that he himself is the ultimate good, which, once possessed, one wants nothing else besides. Or it could be that he was so brutish and ignorant and senseless, and yet he realizes, God never left me. He's that faithful to me. Or that he deserved to be cast off like the wicked, but rather he received grace and patient love instead. Whatever happened in Asaph's mind and heart, he now wants just God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is what he's saying. And then he says, even if my flesh fails, even if my heart fails, my heart gives out. So it's like he's recognizing his own vulnerability to frailty and corruption. And he's not afraid of that. He's not fearful of the future, even one that includes a heart that fails or a flesh that's too weak to keep going. He accepts his weakness. He accepts his strickenness as a person. And he, he, he's calling us to do the same. So let's admit with Asaph that my heart and my flesh will fail. They will fail. 
But he and we can be willing to be afflicted and weak because, as he says, God is the strength of my heart. And God is the portion of my portion forever. Now, what does that mean for one to be the strength of one's heart, for God to be the strength of one's heart? Well, think about it. Your heart circulates your blood. It keeps you alive. That's really helpful. It sustains your physical life, doesn't it? Spiritually, though, what is your heart? It's the engine of your endurance. It's the organ by which you hope and expect for the future. It's that thing that that causes you to trust and to believe and to endure and to express your emotions. So for Asaph and for us, God is the engine and sustainer of his life. It's the, God is the engine of our affections for himself and for other people. God is our hope. He's our expectation. He's the one that gives us endurance. He's the one that fuels our belief and our trust. He's the strength of our heart. And he's also our portion. The wicked have earthly prosperity, but by having God himself, Asaph realizes, I've got the giver of all prosperity. Where the wicked have earthly comfort, he has the comforter himself. Where the wicked have an earthly life of 60, 70 years of prosperity and ease and escape from trouble, Asaph is looking forward to 60,000 years of uninterrupted glory and more. They boast of oppression, but now Asaph's going to boast of the God who rules the universe, whom he has. Their tongue parades through the earth, but Asaph's God spoke that earth into existence. Isn't that great? They increase in earthly riches, and God, and, but Asaph has God as his portion. And the heavenly riches of eternal forgiveness, eternal peace, and the promise of eternal life. And lastly, he remembers those who are far away from God, they will perish. God's going to destroy those who are unfaithful to him. Someday Richard Dawkins is going to stand before that fictional God he so eloquently despises. Someday um, Omar Bashir will one day face God's judgment and it will be righteous and complete. God's judgment is that one simple, great, often forgotten fact of the future. And even though in the meantime the wicked might prosper, and oppress, we should say with Asaph, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. He wanted the goods of pride, I mean of, of, of ease and prosperity, and now he just wants God, who is his ultimate good and his refuge. Let's pray.